right, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity we have to come together with Sisters of Christ and assemble to open up your word, the word of God, which is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is the dynamite of, of life and eternity, and we thank you for it. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us in the word, and the word is Jesus Christ, and as we look at him, we learn of him. And we become more like him. We pray for the sanctification process that it is continuing in every one of our lives, Lord. And, um, and uh, that we today, the Holy Spirit, would have his will and way in every one of our hearts, Lord. I know as we look at this denunciation discourse, it's not exactly the most fun thing to study. But, but we need to be convicted in certain areas because I'm sure that there is a little bit of hypocrisy in each and every one of us. So... May our hearts be open to hear what your spirit has to say through the word. Um, and may we, may we be doers of the word and not hearers only. And whatever is accomplished here this morning, Lord, may it be totally for your glory. For we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we shall see this morning, as we continue in our study of the Lord's 11th recorded major sermon, which we've entitled the Denunciation Discourse, Christ's harshest words and his most furious wrath was reserved for those individuals who held themselves out to be God's servants when the truth of the matter was that they were really deceivers and liars and children of Satan himself, which is what Jesus says right to their faces. The 23rd chapter of Matthew's Gospel contains the last words that the Lord Jesus ever spoke within the confines of the temple walls, at least publicly. Now, when he finishes with this denunciation discourse, as we'll see when we come back in January, he does go over to a little corner with his men, and he watches the the people putting their money into the, you know, the trumpet-shaped receptacles giving their offerings but then he notices the widow who gives her two mites and he does comment on her to his disciples so these aren't exactly his last words in the temple but these are his last public words in the temple after after that little widow experience he leaves he departs from the temple never to return there again except at his second coming So anyway, knowing better than anyone that his time on earth was getting very, very short, he did not hold back words here in this denunciation discourse to expose the hypocrisy of of Israel's religious leaders and, and to sharply rebuke not only their false doctrines, but also their very wicked hypocritical practices. He didn't want to leave his followers as naive, uninformed sheep surrounded by ravenous wolves. So he warned them just as plainly and as clearly and as boldly as possible uh, against the false shepherds of the nation of Israel. He began in today's lesson. We're going to pick up at verse 13. Now, if you missed last week's message about the first 12 verses, I don't have time to review because we do have so much territory to cover. So just get the uh, CD tape on it or else read it in in the notes. But um, today we're going to pick up at verse 13 and launch right into the third part of our outline. We're going to pick up with woes to the Pharisees. Now, we've already talked about warnings to the multitudes. That was part one of our outline. And then we talked about the words to his disciples. Today, we're going to look at the woes to the Pharisees. And I did want to take a minute. This is not in your notes because something I learned 
since I wrote the notes. But the word woe is a very interesting word in the Greek. There is no comparable word to it in the English language. So what they did is they took the Greek word and they sounded it out as best as they could and they came up with W-O-E. But the word in Greek is an onomatopoeia, which is, you know what an onomatopoeia is? A word that sounds like what it is. Like the word giggle, 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 giggle. It sounds like a giggle, doesn't it? Well, the word woe in Greek is ooh. Doesn't that sound like what it is? A woe. And it's, in, it's spelled O-U-A-I in Greek. Of course, those aren't the names of the Greek letters. But it's, a, it's a, a word that is a mixture of wrath and grief. It's a mixture of wrath and sorrow. It's a, he's denouncing these men. He's saying woe to them. It's, it's like a curse. It's a denunciation. But mixed with his denouncement is grief. It's a grieving denunciation. It's a godly, it's a godly threat. So as he's denouncing them, there's also a mixture of sorrow in his heart. So it's ooh, yeah, to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Well, he began in verse 13 to relentlessly condemn the scribes and Pharisees who at that time, now why is he condemning them instead of the Sadducees or the Herodians or the Zealots or another sect of Israel? Well, he's condemning mainly the scribes and the Pharisees because they held the greatest influence over the masses of people. In this last public message, he wanted to draw the people away from these false leaders and turn them instead to the true teaching, which would very soon be coming forth by, you know, from his men, the apostles. So in verses 13 to 36, he pronounced a series of seven woes or oohs on the spiritual, wicked spiritual leadership of Israel. Now, I know I told you the word woe or ue appears eight times, but he actually, there are eight woes, and there are eight times he says the word hypocrites. But two of those woes are concerning the same denouncement. And we'll see that it's in verses 25, 26, 27, 28. That's, That's just one denunciation against them, but twice he says woe. So there's seven. Wouldn't you know there'd be seven? (laughs) Of course, there'd be seven denouncements. Now, on Monday of the Passion Week, we always have to remember where we are. Where are we? We're on Tuesday of the Passion Week. Well, just the day before, on Monday, Jesus had vented his anger against what the religious leaders were doing outwardly in all that they were doing there in the temple, you know, with the money changers and the animal sellers. So he, he vented his anger against what they were doing outwardly. Now today, on Tuesday, not, well today is Tuesday, isn't it? But Tuesday of the Passion Week, which was the very next day, he um, was attacking what they were inwardly. And what were they? You could boil what they were inwardly down to one word. And what was it? Hypocrites. They were hypocrites. The scribes and the Pharisees were hypocrites because they pretended to be righteous and godly while really they were sinful and they were evil. The religious world has always, always had its hypocrites. It has been infiltrated with an abundance of hypocrites. And the church of Jesus Christ has been no exception to that. So we want to therefore realize that in this series of woes or curses, Jesus by extension, was also condemning all false spiritual leaders, all false teachers, all false prophets, and all hypocrites. 
So, you know, it's applicable to today's hypocrites and false teachers as well as it was back then to the scribes and the Pharisees. He condemned the Jewish scribes and Pharisees for doing things typical of all false religious leaders. So what we will find that Jesus said about those men back then is of much more value than just the historical importance. He gives to us essential teaching for recognizing and dealing with false teachers false leaders who likewise appear in great numbers, probably even greater numbers today than back then. Is the world full of false teachers? False? Yes, yes. They're abundant. Kim just last week came to me and told me, and I forgot to find out exactly where she's taking this class, but she's in a class, a religious class. But she shared this with me, and she would have no problem with me sharing it with you. Uh, In the class, the teacher who was... A religious teacher, I don't even know, I mean, he might have even been a minister, but um, he, he was defining for the class prophecy. And he told them that prophecy has absolutely nothing to do with the future. That prophecy, the prophecy of scripture was just like, for example, the book of Revelation, he said, was only for, you know, the day and age in which the apostle John wrote it. That's the preterist view. It's a historical view. And there are a lot of churches that teach that, that the book of Revelation was only applicable for those people living back in John's day. And it was written in symbolic language, you know, so that they wouldn't be persecuted, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, but it had nothing to do with the future. So he said, prophecy, scriptural prophecy has nothing to do with the future. It was only for the day in which it was written. And Kim says she's sitting there going, what? So she said, you know, she raised her hand and she said, um, but uh, what about, like, for example, Isaiah 7:14, which says that a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son and, you know, he, he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. That was written like 700 years before Christ, and it was prophecy about what would happen in the future. Okay, and she said his face turned white, and he was embarrassed in front of the whole class, and he said, "Um, well, Kim, I'm not really a scholar. And I said, you know, I said, Kim, you should have gotten up and taught that class, I think. Probably knew more than he did about it, but that guy has no business teaching a class on religion, and our, our seminaries and schools are full of people like that. And sadder still, our churches are full of people like that. So, <clears throat> in sequential order, we're now going to consider the seven reasons Jesus gave to the nation of Israel for the judgment which must and would fall upon her and her false Pharisaic system of Judaism, which had led her to reject her own Savior. Judgment must fall, and he was going to give them the reasons why. He addressed these reasons to the scribes and Pharisees because, above all other people, they were more responsible than anyone else for Israel's coming judgment because the sheep, you know, the dumb sheep, they usually follow their leaders, don't they? And uh, that's what they did. So he pronounced woes upon them for having committed the following offenses, which we're going to, I'm going to read them one by one in the scripture. We'll go over them very quickly, but these are the offenses. He condemns them for shutting up the kingdom against men, for stealing from widows, for sending men to hell, for swearing for gain, straining at gnats, 
scrubbing the externals and slaying the righteous. And those all began with S. Aren't you impressed? (laughs) All right, so let's begin by looking at uh, his woe against them for shutting up the kingdom. And this is in verse 13, just verse 13. He says, but woe, or ooh, unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. This first woe was directed against their systematic opposition to the progress of the true gospel. They shut up the kingdom of heaven right smack dab in men's faces. And I can say that because that's exactly in Greek what the word against means, where he says, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. I looked up that word in Greek and it means right in the faces. They slammed the door shut right in men's faces. Jesus had come offering himself as the way of access into God's eternal kingdom. He alone is the straight gate, right, that leads to life. He alone is the door of the sheep. He alone is uh, the one mediator between God and man. Through him alone, a man must enter in order to be saved. Didn't he say, I am the way? No man cometh unto the Father but by me. By rejecting him, the scribes and the Pharisees were shutting the one door through which people could come into God's kingdom. They would neither enter in themselves, you know, willfully would not enter in, even though I think a lot of them really believed he was who he said he was. It was too much evidence to prove otherwise. But they willfully refused to acknowledge him. And uh, But worse, they stood in the way of allowing others to enter in as well. You know, the people on Palm Sunday were ready to accept Jesus Christ, weren't they? Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna to the son of David. If their religious rulers had said, yes, he is the one. Hey, you know what? Daniel calculated it would be this very day that the Messiah would officially present himself to, uh, to Jerusalem, to Israel. If they had said, yes, the crowds would have followed along and they would have accepted Jesus Christ. And the crowd was there right at the door. And what did the religious rulers do? They slammed the door literally right in the people's faces. The chief sin of every false religion and cult, the chief sin, and I think we would all agree on this, is that it shuts people out of the kingdom of heaven doesn't it? False religions might offer people, you know, uh, an emotional high, or what is it the Mormons say, a burning in the bosom, you know, some kind of emotional feeling. They might offer them friendship. That's what a lot, why a lot of people go into cults, you know, because they're so friendly to me, and, you know, they accept me. And, or they might um, even appease their guilty consciences, or they might raise their moral and ethical standards. For example, again, Mormonism, they have some very high standards, Look at uh, Mitt Romney. He's a very moral, ethical guy, isn't he? Yes, he is. Um, False religions, and he's Mormon, you know that, um, might provide them with, as I said, friendships and even increase their worldly success. But one thing false religions can never, ever do is remove a person's sin and fill that void within them and take away from them that heavy burden of guilt or improve their relationship with a holy God who can in no wise... Allow them to enter into his presence, just like that intruder at the wedding banquet. You know, what are you doing here? Get out. You're not covered with what? The righteousness of Jesus Christ. False religions may promise men and women hell, 
like uh, the Islam religion. You know, if you'll just be a jihadist and if you'll take people out, like what just happened in Fort Hood, awful. That was a terrorist attack. Terrorist attack. If you take people out with you when you go, instant heaven and all the virgins you can enjoy throughout, throughout eternity. You'll be a hero. They might promise men heaven, like the Mormons, they don't believe in a hell, do they? Is Marilyn in here? I don't, they don't believe in a hell. They say that there's just seven different levels of heaven. They might promise heaven, but all they really deliver is hell, eternal hell. Now, that man that took those people out at Fort Hood, now, you know, it's just, it's really scary. But he was living a living hell here on earth. There was no, there's no peace in that guy. Can you imagine a psychiatrist trying to minister to someone who's just come back to Iraq with a mindset like his? Awful, awful. He's living in a living hell here on earth. But if he doesn't get saved, he's going to experience a living hell forever which will make this earth look like it was heaven for him. Tragically, the scribes and the Pharisees of first century Israel are responsible for having succeeded in turning literally millions and millions of Jewish people away from the one true door of heaven. That's why, we've talked about this before, that's why most Jews today do not believe in Jesus as their Messiah. This goes back to these scribes and Pharisees because they said, well, if he really had been, our religious leaders back then would have known that and they would have accepted him, so he must not have been. The single greatest challenge of the church today. What do you think the single greatest challenge of the church today is? Is the single greatest challenge to fight against secular humanism or socialism or communism or evolutionism? Is the single greatest challenge of the church today to fight against uh, um, premarital sex and all kinds of different fornication and single greatest challenge to 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 uh, fight against uh, did I say abortions and youth euthanasia and all those other I mean we could go on and on couldn't we homosexuality is that our single greatest challenge no our single greatest challenge the body of true believers is to proclaim boldly and clearly and unashamedly the truth of the gospel message of Jesus Christ and to expose the lies of false religions and cults. Christendom, as we just mentioned, is saturated today, saturated with liberal preachers. I just shared with Terry that message about the R-rated church that I've told you before. Cannot believe it. But it's coming into pulpits across America. It's a growing movement. R-rated pulpits. Where anything goes, it's just disgusting. And the emergent church movement where they say doctrine doesn't matter, you know, and it's just like relative, whatever. Anyway, uh, Christendom is saturated. And if you don't believe me, just go out there to some of the churches and listen to what's going on. And tares are in the pulpits and in the seminaries and in the Sunday school classrooms. And they're not telling people how to be saved. I was in church my whole childhood. I have ribbons to prove perfect Sunday school attendance. Do you think I ever heard the gospel message? Not once. Never, ever did I hear. I don't know what I heard because it was all in Greek. <laughs> it was Greek to me. 
<laughs> but I never heard the gospel. The first time I ever heard the gospel message, I was 22 and a half, 22 and a half years old, and I accepted it. I believed it because it is true. But there are a lot of a lot of churches out there where they give little sermonettes and um, little feel-good things, and you know, God is love, and and that's it. A lot of churches will take you right up to the point of the gospel message, but they won't get there. It's just so frustrating. I've been in churches like that where they say everything except how to be born again. They don't tell people how to be saved. And you know, you need to know that except you're born again, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. How do you get born again? Well, here's how you do it. You know, you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You repent of your sins and you ask him to save you. Why don't they say that? That's so simple. Even a child can understand it. Oh, but they don't want to offend anybody by saying born again or something like that. So, or repent. Yeah, that's the main thing. I don't want anybody to have to repent. They want to mention sin. You know, there's some preachers on television who have mega churches, ladies. And you probably, if I gave you their names, you'd be mad at me for saying something against them. But you listen carefully and they're not going to talk about sin. They don't mention sin, and they don't mention repentance. There's something wrong with that. You cannot be saved without repenting. Repent and be born again. All right. Well, I'll never finish at this rate, Terry. Let's go on to stealing for widows. your fault. <laughs> don't you love how I always blame her for everything? <laughs> Let's look at the uh, stealing for widows. And this makes me mad, too. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. This is verse 14. Hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. In this second woe, the Lord accused the scribes and the Pharisees of taking advantage of people such as widows for their own personal gain. Do we have men doing that today? And women? Oh, it's, it's just sickening. And these poor women, I mean, they're giving. Now, God will reward them for what they're doing with their own heart and their money, but they'll send in money to these hypocrites these tares you know and they'll promise them well if you send us money we'll all your troubles will disappear and we'll send you a little handkerchief and you can put it under your pillow and and everything you pray for will come true i mean just baloney yeah yeah and then right. hey have you fallen for that but we've all heard it before. Um, they're doing the same thing the scribes and the Pharisees would do. The, the scribes and Pharisees imposed upon the weak and helpless condition of unprotected women who easily would, you know, they're, they're lonely and, and um, they don't have a man to protect them. And so they would easily fall for the great show of devotion that these men would have. You know, they'd come to them, put their arm around them, and they'd have this long, pious prayer. And the women would think, well, they really do care for me. And uh, so they would get those women to look up to them for guidance in life. They would worm their ways into widows' hearts until they got to be the trustees of their estates. <laughs> and they would rob them even of their, their meager incomes and their houses. 
They would even take their houses from them. Now, it's interesting because in the parallel account to this over in Luke, Luke talks about, you know, woe to you guys because you're robbing widows. And then the very next thing that Luke talks about, and we'll see this when we come back, Lord willing, in January, is that widow who gave her two mites. I got to thinking, you know what probably happened to her? The scribes and the Pharisees came along and they robbed her of everything that she had. So all she had left was two mites. That was it. And she gave those two mites to the uh, the work of the Lord. And the Lord honored her for that. But, you know, these guys, greater condemnation was due them because of this. They were devouring the very ones who, under the law of God, they were especially responsible to protect. Because the law of God in the Old Testament was very clear that Israel, and especially her leadership, was to take care of who? The fatherless and the widows, the orphans and the widows and the strangers. But they instead were abusing their influence purposely in order to gain money for themselves, as was the case, you know, in the temple with all the money changers and the animal sellers. They were using religion to make money and they were robbing the people. This sin not only denotes their covetousness, but it also shows us their cold-hearted cruelty in oppressing those they should have been shepherding and they should have been shielding. And this was a great sin in the eyes of Jesus, who, and he wanted to expose it. You know, it's no th- new thing. It's no, there is no new thing under the sun, but it's no new thing for the show of godliness and out, an outward form of piety to be made a crafty cloak for greed. But hypocritical piety, no matter how many thousands it might fool on earth, and many are fooled by an outward show of piety when these guys are just getting rich. You know, it's wrong to use religion to line your own pocketbook. And, and I just want to take a minute to say this. You know, when we sell our books and our tapes, it's just to get the word of God out. We actually, we don't make anything. We are literally a nonprofit organization. Sometimes we might make pennies, but they go back into the ministry to buy equipment that we, and to pay our nursery workers and all that. But Terry, bless her heart, is good for nothing. <laughs> and so am I. <laughs> You know, I promised the Lord years ago, I, I will not take one, I don't want to make any profit for, you know, for what we do here. Not, not to lie, now my, the Lord has abundantly blessed me through my husband working. And I praise the Lord for that so I have time to study and, you know, to, to teach. But I wouldn't take any salary for this. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pay our preachers. I mean, yes, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, what is it? You shouldn't muzzle the ox that feeds you. But um, there are a lot of guys out there who are taking people, they're robbing the people just so they can have huge mansions and Cadillacs and Lexus and all those kind of things. You know what I'm talking about. And the music industry also, beware. The music industry is full of, you know, there's good godly music and I'm not condemning all of it, but there are some who are just charlatans and they're out to, to, to make themselves rich. Uh, I was saying they might fool millions of people on earth, but who do they never fool? They don't fool God. He, uh, one day he's going to judge the secrets of men. So it, this is what, in effect, Jesus told the scribes and the Pharisees at the end of verse 14. One day they're going to pay. 
He says, therefore, ye shall receive the greater damnation. You see, there are some sins that are more horrible than others. And using religion for selfish ends is one of them. This sin, these aren't my words. These are Jesus's words. He says, this sin will receive the greater damnation. Now, what does that tell us? Yes, there are degrees of punishment in hell. We've learned this before when he talked to the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. There are different degrees of punishment in hell. This sin of robbing widows is one of the greater sins, using religion for your own, you know, excess and purposes. But, uh, and why, why, is, why does Jesus feel this way about this particular sin? Well, it's because widows, how many of you are widows? Widows, you widows, hold a very, very special place in the heart of God. He is now your protector, is he not? He is now your husband. And does he not take wonderful care of you? He does. And he loves you with a very, very special love. And I told the ladies yesterday, you know, it's our obligation as a church, um, as, as believers, to be providing for widows and to be taking care of you and I feel like like we have neglected you and I hope your church is but we all need to be more aware of that to take care of those in our churches who are widows and make sure they have what they need and because that's you know like I said they're very dear to the heart of God so you ladies should be very dear to our hearts as well and so on behalf of all the churches that say we love you and if you need anything let us know okay Dottie Catherine the rest of you, Dot. Because one day we'll be in your shoes, probably. Unless my bladder falls out and I go first. <laughs> All right, let's move on to sending men to hell. Um, and for this, we'll look at verse 15. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Did you realize he not only called them hypocrites there, but children of hell? <laughs> He is not pulling any punches. Well, the next woe against the rulers um, of Israel, Jesus cursed them for proselytizing the people. They not only excluded them from the true faith, but they proselytized them to their own false faith. In saying that they compass sea and land and make one proselyte, the Lord was saying that they would labor almost incessantly in order to make men adopt their own opinions and follow their own false ways. Now, they didn't do this, of course, from a desire to see men and women, boys and girls get saved, you know, to enter into the kingdom of, of heaven. They did this to, to swell their own ranks, you know, their own following, and to strengthen their own positions and power and, again, their own pocketbooks. Now, there, are two, there were two kinds of proselytes back in that day. There were the proselytes of the gate and there were the proselytes of righteousness. It sounds like the proselytes of righteousness would be the righteous proselytes, but it was actually just the opposite. The proselytes of the gate consisted of God-worshipping Gentiles. Now, when they say proselyte, they're talking about the Gentiles not the Jews, but it consists of God-worshipping Gentiles who only attended synagogue services, but they didn't get circumcised and they didn't commit themselves to all the rituals and the traditions and the ceremonies and the feast days, etc., of legalistic Judaism. Now, proselytes of righteousness were Gentile converts to the faith of the, in the true God who became, of course, they didn't have genuine faith. They just 
They liked the idea of monotheism, you know, one God. It was very difficult to appease all the gods, so they thought, well, we'll just appease one God, you know. So 613 rules didn't seem like that big of a deal to them <laughs> compared to appeasing all those horrific Greek gods and Roman gods. So um, they, they became as religiously Jewish as they possibly could. They were circumcised. They attended all the uh, synagogue services. They attended all the feasts. And they participated in all the ceremonies and the sacrifices, and they observed all the various cleansings, uh, both biblical and traditional. They even would take Jewish names in order to separate themselves as much as they could from their pagan past. However, unfortunately, although they were outwardly worshiping the true God, Jehovah God, they were far from righteous before him in their hearts. Having learned, you see, from the scribes and Pharisees, they were also and even more proud than their teachers. They were extremely proud, they were extremely self-righteous, and steeped in externalism. And the religious rulers, the scribes and the Pharisees, would think it was a real feather in their cap to gain a Gentile um, who was a proselyte of righteousness. They're the ones who called him, you know, a proselyte of righteousness. Because many of these proselytes of righteousness became even more zealous in their legalistic practices of Judaism than their teachers. <laughs> they became more zealous than the scribes and the Pharisees. And so when Jesus said that they became twofold more the children of hell than the scribes and Pharisees, it was a truth. They did. Now, a child of hell is the equivalent of calling one a child of the devil which is what the Lord had called the Pharisees already back in Matthew chapter 12 and also in, in John 8, 44. He had called them the children of, of the devil. He's going to call them that again in verse 33. I hope if we make it there. But um, today, yeah. <laughs> now to call, you know, to walk, to, to be in front of all these guys and call them children of hell, children of the devil, that's pretty bold, wouldn't you say? That is pretty bold. Matthew Henry, you know, Matthew Henry, the great commentator, said that um, the, uh, the uh, Gentile proselytes to Pharisaic Judaism became the most bitter enemies of the early church that there were. And you can read about them in many different passages in the book of Acts. They opposed the apostles more than even the scribes and Pharisees. So literally, they did become twofold, you know, more the children of hell than their teachers. Um, but this, and this added to the sin of the scribes and the Pharisees and would bring them greater damnation on Judgment Day. All right, moving right along, let's look at for swearing for gain. He accuses them of swearing, taking oaths for gain. And that's in verses 16 to 22. Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. In other words, if you swear by the temple, it's not binding. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. That's what they would say. You know, you're, you're bound to your oath if you swear by the gold of the temple, but not if you swear by the temple. It's really crazy. And so he says, it's crazy. He says, ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold? And this is what else they would say. And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it's nothing. If you swear just by the altar, it doesn't mean anything. It's not binding. But they said, whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. In other words, he has to keep his oath. 
Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift? Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it and by all things thereon. If you swear by the altar, you're swearing by everything that's on the altar, he says. And whoso shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it and by him that dwelleth therein. Who would that be? God. And then verse 22, he says, And he that shall swear by heaven, which was another oath they would take, I swear by heaven that I will give so much this year to, to the work of the Lord, to the temple. You swear by heaven. He says, if you swear by heaven, you're swearing by the throne of God and by him that sitteth thereon. He's condemning the Pharisees because they were blind guides. They were blind because they're so steeped in all this stuff that they really were blind to the truth. They were convinced in what they, what they made up themselves. Um, he calls them blind guides for circumventing the very clear teaching of the scripture regarding the taking of oaths. Over the years, they had developed their own little system of making vows and taking oaths, which permitted them to actually lie and get away with it, at least before men. They didn't get away with it before God. But uh, they made up their own oath-taking rules and said, all this is is another loophole that they're trying to, to evade, make you know, commitments. They could look pious to everybody else when they make their vow and they, they say, I'm going to give... Uh, 50% of my income this year to the temple. And then they, you know, basically have their fingers crossed and they turn around, ha, 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 I'm just kidding. So they're making a little loophole here. And they said that if a person were to swear by the temple, it was not binding. He could later renege on it. But if he swore, swore took his vow by the gold of the temple, you know, the temple was overlaid with gold. There was gold everywhere in the temple. If they swore by the gold of the temple, then their oath was binding. They had to, they had to keep the oath. Oh, isn't that ridiculous? They also said that if one was to swear by the altar, they could renege later on that oath. But if they swore by the gift on the altar, then they were bound to keep their vow or their promise. Now, this double standard for swearing merely demonstrated that they weren't really interested in and concerned about keeping their promises or their commitments to God, were they? I mean, they would make these promises not only to men and break them, but to God, too. So they're not really concerned about keeping their word. They're not concerned about the truth. They're only concerned with evading truth when it would better serve their own selfish interests. They wanted the right to break promises, is what they wanted. Promises to anybody, including God. And in verses 17 and 19, he spoke against the logical absurdity of the Pharisees' idea that by swearing by the gold of the temple and by the gift on the altar, that that was somehow more binding than if someone swore by the temple or the, or the altar. You know, it, what they're really focused on is, yes, they're focusing the people on the gold and on the gift, aren't they? Rather than that which sanctified the gold and the gift, which was the temple and the altar. They were such fools... And they were so blind. And false religious leaders are fools. And they are blind. They're self-deceived. Or sat satanically deceived. But they're blind. They, these guys were so blind to, to true spiritual matters that they had somehow determined that making an oath on something lesser, spiritually speaking, was more binding than an oath made on something greater. 
spiritually speaking. The temple was far greater than the gold that decorated the temple, just as the altar was far greater than the gift that was put upon it. In both cases, it was the greater thing that actually sanctified the lesser thing. For example, a a piece of gold, my wedding ring here, a piece of gold apart from the temple is what? It's a piece of gold, but it certainly isn't anything holy. It's just a piece of gold. Just as a, a dove or a lamb or a goat, you know, apart from lying on the altar, what is it? It's an animal. It's just an animal. But as Jesus went on to say, what made it sanctified, what made it holy was the you know, fact that it was affiliated with the temple of God. <laughs> Jesus was, uh, he goes on to say in verses 20 to 22, to swear by the altar is to swear by everything on it. And who was soon to be laid on the altar? He himself. To swear by the altar would be to be swearing by him. And who is he? He's God. To swear by the temple, he was saying, was really to swear by him that dwelleth therein, namely, God himself. And to swear by heaven was to swear by the throne of God and by him that sits thereon. What Jesus was saying here was that everything associated with the temple and everything associated with heaven involves who? God. In fact, since everything in the whole universe was created by God, it didn't matter what you swore by. You know, you could swear by the, the, your mother's grave. You could swear by the hair on your head. Or the, the people swear by all kinds of things. Swear by Jerusalem. Swear by this. Swear by that. You know, whatever you swore by, the, the, you were really, you know, swearing by God because he's the owner and creator of all that exists. Their whole concept of taking oaths had developed into something theologically and even logically ridiculous. Their double standards were nothing more than their evil devices to use holy things to hide their unholy hearts. You know, it was like using religion for gain. Here they're using holy things to just hide the corruption of their own hearts. Remember when we studied the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus spoke about swearing. And basically he said, an oath in every case, no matter what oath or what vow a man makes, he is obligated to keep it. If you're going to make an oath, you're obligated. I don't care what you make it by. If you have your fingers crossed, who cares? You make an oath, you stand before the pastor, and you make your vows to your spouse, and you say, till death do us part, you are obligated to keep that vow, that oath. It's not, you know, until I feel like I don't like you anymore, or you're not pretty enough, or you don't meet my needs. You're making a vow before God. That's it. You're obligated, you know, you're bound to keep it. When we studied the Sermon on the Mount, we heard him say this. He said, swear not at all, neither by heaven. It's a serious thing to take a vow, very serious. Watch what you make a vow about, because it's binding. He said, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by earth, for it's his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head. For thou canst not make one hair black or white. I told the ladies, that's the one place I disagree with Jesus. (laughs) That's true. That's very true. I do agree with Jesus. I would never disagree with Jesus. I can't make my white hairs black, but I can cover them up. But he says, but let your communication be yay, yay, nay, nay. In other words, if you say yes, what do you mean? Yes. I do? I do, yes. 
I don't? Okay, get out of there. <laughs> don't say I do if you're not going to. Uh, he says, let your yea be yea and your nay nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Whatever happened to the good old days when a man's word was his word? And you could make a covenant with a handshake. Those days are gone. You can't trust anybody. All the way to the top, you can't trust anybody. A tr- but a truly righteous, godly person will always desire to tell the truth and try not to find, he won't try to find loopholes, ways that he can get away with, you know, not keeping his promises and his vows. A truly godly person is going to say yes when he means yes. And he's going to say no if he means no. And his word can always be trusted because of his virtuous character, right? Right? You all say right? Okay. Let's look at straining for Nance. You've all been holding your breath. You couldn't wait till we got to this one. <laughs> 23 and 24. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye have to, to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides, which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Well, this fifth woe... Of the, in the Lord's list of denunciations was directed against the practice of the religious rulers of magnifying the insignificant and minimizing the important. In other words, putting last things first and first things last. They had totally inverted God's divine priorities. And an example of this, it seems like we've talked about this in the last two weeks, but an example of this was um, in their tithing. Now, the law demanded that they would tithe their marketable farm crops, that they'd give a tenth of their wheat or their grain, their fruits, their vegetable, their olive oil, etc. But never did it say that they needed to give of their garden herbs and spices, but so that they could look even more pious than the rest of them. Remember that pub- the uh, Pharisee that was in the temple? And he was so proud of himself, and he was bragging to God, and he said, Oh, God, I'm so glad I'm not like that publican back there you know because i even give you i even tithe my garden herbs and so they they wanted to look extra pious so they would even you know be so meticulous as to as to give of their garden herbs however at the same time jesus said that what were they neglecting they were meticulous about the little things but they were neglecting the weightier things justice and mercy did they have any mercy for the people no they were neglecting faith. That was a pretty important one. They didn't have their faith in the, in, in the true God, really. You see, they would far rather ignore the law's demand for righteousness and inner heart cleansing and put the emphasis upon those external matters which they could manage to accomplish without having to change inwardly and submit themselves to God. You see, which is easier? Is it easier to count out... Ten annas for me, and I mean nine for me, whoops, and one for you, God. Is, is that easier to do, or is it easier to have poverty of spirit, mourn over my sin, be pure in heart, hunger and thirst after righteousness, be meek, merciful, have justice, love my neighbor? Which is harder? The latter, definitely. It's really easy to do external things. Count out mint, give a tenth of the tithe. That's, that's easy isn't it? The harder thing is to, is to be right inside, which of course you cannot do without being born again and having God the Holy Spirit enable you to be righteous. So that's what, why all false religions are all about externalism and works. 
So to feel better about themselves, they simply inverted God's priorities and they made the weightier matters of the law light. Remember how we talked about heavy and light laws? They made the heavier matters light and they made the lighter matters heavy, totally topsy-turvy. This inversion of important spiritual truths is almost always true of false religions. They almost always stress the insignificant while ignoring the very important. But this is not only true of false religions, this can also be easy for Christians to get bogged down in. Did you know that? We can get bogged down in the insignificant things. I mean, there are some Christians who get all bent out of shape about how long a man's hair should be, or how short a woman's hair should be, or not be, or, you know, and there's other things I could give you in, as examples. And yet they, they only give brief attention to such such things as important, weighty things as mercy and compassion and gentleness in their lives and kindness and poverty of spirit, etc., etc. The Lord referred to this inverted type of behavior as straining at a gnat. You know what a gnat is? I had a bunch of them around me the other day and I just couldn't get rid of the little things. Seem to be out now that it's Indian summer, you know, and it's warmer. But um, he called it straining at a gnat while swallowing... A camel swallowing a camel. They were majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. Um, And actually what the Lord might have had in mind or probably had in mind here was the Pharisaic practice of these guys just amuse me no end. I sit at home studying and I'm just sitting there laughing sometimes when I read these things. But the Pharisees had a practice of drinking with the clenched teeth. They would drink, they would clench their teeth, and then they put the cup up to their mouth, and, and they would drink. And they were using their teeth as a strainer. You know why they were doing that? Because there might be a gnat in their drink. And they didn't want to drink the gnat, because if they drank the gnat, they'd be ceremonially unclean. Because it said in Leviticus that insects were unclean. Can you imagine? <laughs> now, I, was, I had dinner with some friends of mine who are Indian, from India, the other night, and they were asking me what I was going to be teaching on this week. And I said, well, it's funny you ask. I'm going to be talking about straining at gnats and swallowing camels. And then the, the husband told me about, because they come out of Hinduism, he said that in, there's a, um, a sect of Hinduism that's known as Jainism. Have you ever heard of it? In, in Jainism... He said the people, well now you know all Hindus believe in reincarnation, but the Jainists take it to the ultimate degree. They will go around constantly with a mesh across their face and their noses, you know, a a mask, a mesh mask. And it's not because of swine flu. (laughs) It's permanently, they wear it whenever they go anywhere because... They don't. They want to make sure that a gnat or a bug or something doesn't fly in their nostrils or into their mouth, because they might be swallowing their Aunt Susie or their Uncle Charlie. You know, you never know. Can you imagine that? Now, I got to thinking, if I was Aunt Susie and I had been reincarnated as a gnat, I would probably want somebody to swallow me, so I could be reincarnated as maybe something a little better than a gnat, <laughs> maybe a holy cow. Um, But not only that, not only do they wear the masks, but the Janus carry a broom with them at all times. And and Gary's from India. He's seen this all his life. He says they carry a broom, and everywhere they go, they sweep the path in front of their feet. Why? Well, because they might step on their great-great-grandmother. You know, they might step on an ant or a spider or something. 
and they sweep them away so that the path is clear before them. Can you imagine living like that? It's, it's really, it's, it's very, it's humorous, but it's so sad. So, um, so they didn't want to swallow a gnat because uh, it would, they'd be ceremonially unclean. And yet Jesus, you know, allegorically speaking here is saying, yeah, you guys will do all this, clench your teeth and everything, so you won't swallow a gnat, but you're, I mean, um, straining gnats, but you'll swallow a camel. Now camels were also considered unclean. So they couldn't eat camel meat and they couldn't eat gnat meat. <laughs> Just think how many gnats. <laughs> it would take a lot of gnats to make a meal, wouldn't it? <laughs> But really what he's saying here is that they were, they were so foolishly blind in their understanding of God's mind when it came to values that they were more concerned about swallowing a gnat than they would have been about contaminating themselves with a large camel. They were meticulously concerned about the ceremonial and traditional trivialities, but they cared nothing at all about their own greed and their pride and their lovelessness and their selfishness and their uh, extortion and their robbing widows, their hypocrisy and their dishonesty. Their sin, again, was greater because they had substituted outward religious acts for the essential priorities of the inner heart. Okay, scrubbing for the or scrubbing the externals, I should say, verses 25 to 28. Woe unto you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites for ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. In these verses, he condemns the religious rulers for their externalism. Again, their external practices. And he used two graphic illustrations to make his point. First of all, he talks about cups and platters. And second of all, he talks about whited sepulchers. In a first, the first example, he spoke of the Pharisees and the scribes as those who would go to great lengths to carefully clean the outside of a cup and a platter. And they actually, I'm not going to get into it, but they had all these little laws about how to clean cups and platters. Unbelievable. But he's, he's saying, you know, you would make sure that the outside of the cup is, is sparkling white clean while you would leave the inside of the cup filthy. That'd be pretty nasty, wouldn't it? To drink out of a dirty cup inside. I don't care how, how clean the outside was. So they go to great lengths to carefully clean the outside while totally ignoring the filth inside. Outwardly, these religious rulers were scrubbed to perfection. You know, their robes were, were white. They always used, made their wives use Clorox or something. You know, just looked so beautiful on the outside. And they would have their giant phylacteries in place, you know, covering their entire forehead. And they would have their beards perfectly combed. And their faces would always bear a, a, a pious countenance upon them. And they would have their long tassels perfectly in place on their prayer shawls and on the bottom of their robes. So outwardly they looked perfect, but inwardly, Jesus says, they were so full of spiritual filth and defilement from their acts of robbery. That's what he means when he says extortion. Who were they robbing? They were robbing the people, for example, in the temple with Annas's Bazaar. They were robbing the widows 
And they were robbing people of their own souls, slamming the door to the kingdom of heaven right in their faces. So he says they were, they, uh, were extorting the people and they had excess. They were self-indulgent. They were robbing the people in order to be self-indulgent and line their own pockets. And so he was saying that anyone who came near them was defiled was also defiled like the proselytes. Their double sin was that they plundered the people not only of their savings, but also of their souls. And then they used what they wickedly gained in order to further their own wealth and positions. Now, it was at this point, probably in verse 26, that the Lord turned and and probably just pointed out one particular Pharisee to make his point, because he said, Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup, that the outside of them may also be clean. You know, how does a person get clean? I could take a bath every hour of every day. And would I be clean on the inside? No, I might be sparkly, squeaky clean on the... My skin would be like a prune on the outside. But that wouldn't cleanse my heart, would it? Wouldn't cleanse my heart at all. Um, so he's saying, first of all, you need to cleanse the heart. And then what happens? It it works from the inside out. When your heart is right, then all the other things take care of themselves. That's like if we just proclaim the truth of the gospel, you know what would happen? All the other things like extramarital sex and abortions and homeless, all those things would take care of themselves. If this country had a revival and people turned back to the truth of the word of God and the absolutes of, of scripture... So he's saying, you know, first of all, be concerned about the the heart. D.L. Moody said this. He said, if I take care of my character, my reputation will take care of itself. And that's so true. But the Pharisees had it totally turned around. They they were they were all about reputation. That was that was their thing, that they wanted to have a reputation before their fellow man. They wanted to be somebody and they didn't concern themselves at all about their character. Well, in the second illustration, he used the example of whited sepulchers or what we might call whitewashed tombs. He told the leaders that they were like whitewashed tombs because they were all scrubbed to appear beautiful on the outside, but within they were full of dead men's bones and all manner of rotting uncleanness. You know, it was a custom back in those days, especially at the time of Passover, for everybody to whitewash not only the walls of their house and their walls around their homes, but also their family tombs. And they would do this because it was just like spring cleaning, but also because there'd be so many pilgrims passing by. You know, they wanted their communities to look so pretty so that the Passover pilgrims would say, oh, isn't this a beautiful little town? And isn't that a beautiful little house? You know, because everybody, everything was scrubbed clean. But they also did it because if you walked over a grave, you were defiled. So if a Passover pilgrim happened to walk over a grave of someone, he was defiled for the next seven days and couldn't participate in all the the Passover ceremonies and sacrifices. So they whitewashed their tombs so they would stand out. People would say, oh, there's a grave. I won't walk over it. You know, you've been to a cemetery where some of the tombstones are so old that you barely see them. And that's what would happen. And that's the practice he's talking about here. Um, so he was saying that like these outwardly white and beautiful tombs, the scribes and Pharisees were merely hiding the fact that within they were spiritually dead. As the tombs defiled those who accidentally walked over them or came into contact with them, anybody who also came into contact with the scribes and Pharisees were really defiled. 
They were the ones who were defiled. And this is probably the best picture of a hypocrite I think the Lord Jesus ever gave to us. A hypocrite is one who is white and clean on the outside, but filled with a contaminating death on the inside. All right, let's move along. Slaying the righteous, verses 29 to 36. This is the longest section. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous. And say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some, this is prophetic here, he's saying he's going to send to them, these prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Barachias, Caius, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. His last woe, his seventh woe here against the scribes and Pharisees, he calls them both serpents and a generation of vipers. And when we look back over this denunciation sermon and consider all the names, I don't know if you circled them in your Bible like I did, but if you look at all the names he called these guys, uh, we get a really vivid picture of what he thinks of false teachers, don't we? He's really, really bold, and he is—he re- really is angry at them. Think of how many, how it breaks his heart. How many millions of people, billions of people, have been deceived because of false teachers and false religions? How many people are in hell today and will be in hell for all of eternity because of false teachers? Yet, even in all this as we'll especially see when I get to the next two verses. Even in all of this, he was not coldly indifferent and callous toward his enemies. Those who he knew in just a couple days were going to kill him. His judgment and his, his accusation of them, remember, is mingled with sorrow. And eight times, if you knew the Greek word, you would know that. It's a mingling of denunciation with sorrow. It, you see... His judgment and his accusation of them, his judgment of them was not his will because it isn't his will that any man should perish. He did not want them to perish. He did not want them to not believe in him. And even at this point, if one of these men turned to him in repentance and in genuine faith, what do you think the Lord Jesus would have done? Would he have said, it's too late, hell for you? No, he would have forgiven them, absolutely. Well, he identified the scribes and Pharisees with Satan here, uh, who, of course, was the original serpent, right? All the way back in Genesis 3. And Satan has a family, and his children follow his example. He's both a murderer and a liar, so what are his children? Murderers and liars. The Pharisees were liars, as Jesus points out in verse 30. They were liars. They went about... Uh, building beautiful memorial tombs to the Old Testament prophets. I've been to Israel and I've seen some of these memorial tombs that they built for Old Testament prophets who were killed by the 
religious rulers back in their day. Uh, and they would go to great lengths to garnish them, you know, whitewash them, put flowers there, and make them appear very beautiful. And they would say to themselves, in essence, you know, we would never, ever have joined our forefathers in killing the prophets and in killing all these righteous, godly men that lived back then. We wouldn't have had any part in all of that. And to prove that, we're making them these beautiful tombs and we're garnishing them. And, you know, we're going to so much, so great pains to make them appear so gorgeous. But that's a lie. That was a lie. because And Jesus exposed the truth. They were genuinely the sons of those who did kill the prophets. And if they had been alive back then, they would have been killing the prophets. They Didn't they just allow John the Baptist to be killed? They could have prevented that. They were just like their forefathers because at that very moment, what was in their hearts to do? Kill Jesus, the prophet of all prophets. Their own Messiah, their Savior, the Son of God. So in doing that, they were proving that they were even more evil than their wicked ancestors. They were proving that they were serpents and vipers, true sons of Satan. They were deadly and they were evil. The murder that they were plotting to do would fill up the measure of all the murders that their forefathers had performed because they were about to murder God himself. Where is that verse? Where it says, 32, fill up ye then the measure of your fathers. What he's basically saying is that all the prophets that had been murdered, like there's a big cup up here. Let's say I have a chalice. And every time they kill a prophet, starting with uh, Abel, who was killed by his brother Cain, and Satan was behind that. Uh, Everyone that was killed, there was another drop of God's wrath in the cup. And the cup was filled just about to the top and it would be filled to the measure when they killed the son of God himself that last drop would fill up the cup of God's wrath and he would have had he had enough and judgment was sure to come that's what he's saying there in that verse the Pharisees and their kind were guilty of all the righteous blood which had ever been shed in the name of religion. Have you ever stopped to think how many people have been killed in the name of religion? How, I mean, those 13 just down in Fort Hood were killed because of religion. 9-11 was all about religion. Every day you turn on the news, somebody's being blown up or martyred somewhere in this world because of religion, in the name of religion. The end result of this long and terrible history of murderers will be judgment. And it was judgment for Israel. When the cup of iniquity was full, he said, this generation of vipers, now he's talking to Israel, will taste the wrath of God. And as we know from history, that generation did suffer the wrath of God, did they not? They filled up the cup with the death of his son. And 37 years later, after they crucified Jesus, God sent his judgment. It came in 70 A.D. through the Romans when they destroyed Jerusalem and scattered the Jewish people to the four corners of the world. Do you think, did this make Jesus happy to predict this judgment? Do you think all these woes that he had to pronounce and all the names he denounced them with, do you think this made him happy and he was going, Whoa, unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you bunch of hypocrites, I can't wait to get vengeance on you. Finally, one day, you know, all the murders you've committed, all the prophets you've killed, all the go- all my godly men that I know you're going to even kill, and my death, I'm going to take vengeance. This didn't make him happy. 
not one single bit. It grieved his heart. And that's what we read in the last few verses, 37 and 38, where he says, and you can just hear the compassion in his voice when he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. He turns now from the scribes and the Pharisees. He's he's done denouncing them. And now he announces judgment upon the city of Jerusalem herself. Not, however, without revealing his deep inner love and grief for her. By the way, in speaking of Jerusalem, when he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he's really, that includes, that's inclusive of all of Israel, you know, including the temple, you know, the entire nation. And his twofold repetition of the name when he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that really emphasizes his empathy, his compassion for her, doesn't it? As opposed to just saying, oh, Jerusalem. But you hear the empathy more when he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Like when David was wailing over his son Absalom, Absalom, Absalom. You can just hear the compassion. Even though the nation's leaders had been guilty of repeatedly killing off God's messengers, yet he said here he still would have gathered them under his wings of grace and mercy as a hen gathers up her little chickens. But... What? They would not. They would not. He would have. In fact, he said he often would have. I oft would have. He would have. But the tragedy of all of it is that they would not. He would have them, but they would not have him. And he doesn't ever force himself upon any person who doesn't want him. They would not come to him that they might have life. Therefore, their house, literally meaning the temple in which he was speaking, but also including the city and the nation, would be left desolate. Why would it be left desolate? You know what he does after this? He goes into the... In the court of the women, he goes into a corner. He sees the little widow put her two mites in. He talks to his disciples about that. And then he leaves the temple for the very last time. His words are soon to be fulfilled. Ichabod will be written over the nation once again because the glory of God was in the temple. He's about to depart. And when Jesus walked out, that house was left desolate. And he says it would be destroyed. The one who had offered them rest in himself was forced to withdraw. And the nation, for now some 2,000 years, has been left desolate. She doesn't even have a temple, does she? Much less God residing there. Yet Jesus did not stop speaking on this despondent note. There is one more verse, and he said, and I'm glad for this one more verse. (laughs) Let's look at it in verse 39. After he says, your house is left unto you desolate, he says, for I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till. That means he's coming back. Yes, I'm leaving you desolate, but you will see me again. You shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Will he return? 
Oh, yes, he will return. He's not finished with Israel yet. You know, in the meantime, he is working through his church. But one day he will return and he will return exactly the same way he departed the temple on this Tuesday of the Passion Week. You know, he went out the eastern gate. He went down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives. That's exactly how he'll return to the Mount of Olives. He'll walk down the Kidron Valley and go into Jerusalem through the eastern gate and go straight to the temple. And then will Israel know who he is? Yes. And they will say what they said on Palm Sunday, but this time they'll really mean it. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Amen. Israel will finally know her Messiah, Jesus Christ.